0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 30th, 2012.
0: Coming up, we mark the 50th anniversary of the book Silent Spring and talk about the new book, On a Farther Shore, The Life and Legacy of Rachel Carson. We will invite listeners to call in during the interview around 8.45 with questions for the author, William Souter.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: How do President Obama's and Governor Romney's science sagacity compare? In its November issue, the popular magazine Scientific American published a rating of the candidates' responses to 14 critical scientific issues. The questions were developed by a dozen-plus scientific and engineering organizations and ScienceDebate.org. The answers were judged on a one-to-five scale, with five being best— Based on directness and completeness, accuracy, benefits, and whether their proposed solutions meet both current and future needs. The two candidates' positions on climate change and energy have been well discussed. But what about pandemics and biosecurity, vaccination and public health, or science and public policy? Consider the vaccination issue. The magazine asks... Vaccination campaigns against preventable diseases such as measles, polio, and whooping cough depend on widespread participation to be effective. In some communities, however, vaccination rates have fallen off sharply. What actions would you support to enforce vaccinations in the interest of public health and in circumstances should exceptions be allowed? On the vaccine question, each candidate scored a four. While Romney recognizes that vaccinations need to be widely administered to be effective, the magazine says he has failed to offer solutions to the problem of declining vaccination rates. The president loses a point because he hasn't spoken against the false belief that vaccines might cause autism. No doubt you're dying to see how badly the guy you don't care for did. Head on over to scientificamerican.com for the full story or snag a copy of the November issue at the local library.
1: It's often called biomimicry, essentially borrowing from nature to create stuff for humans. For example, humpback whale-inspired wind turbines and modeling the front end of Japan's Shinkansen bullet train after the beak of kingfishers to make the train quieter and more energy-efficient. In the latest development, nature's protagonist is the firefly. The insect has inspired scientists to design types of energy-saving LED lights, Specifically, researchers in South Korea have copied the structure of the firefly's lantern to increase light transmission in the small, efficient lights known as LEDs, or light-emitting diodes. The lantern is part of the insect's abdomen that brightly glows to send a sort of lover's Morse code to potential mates. The scientists hope that their results could help spur the development of low-cost lenses for LEDs that are now beginning to appear in high-efficiency home lighting. The researchers examined the structure of the firefly bioluminescent organ with an electron microscope and found that the firefly's lantern consisted of a reflective layer, a light-producing layer, and a transparent outer layer. Unlike other parts of the abdomen, the lantern's outer structure is ordered in rows like crops in a field. Inspired by the firefly, the researchers designed and created a series of LEDs consisting of a reflector cup, the light-producing LED chip, and a transparent lens pattern on the outside with tiny, highly ordered structures. Tests showed that the pattern lenses transmitted more light than smooth lenses over a full range of visible wavelengths, comparable to costly anti reflective coatings. The paper was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
0: Tomorrow, is halloween a time when we enjoy the fun of fright but how does the brain create the response that we identify as fear as described by the website science.howstuffworks.com there are two processes one that is a quick response the flight or flight response and one that is a higher level response that involves more conscious thought imagine the front door to your home is suddenly knocking against the frame it could be the wind. It could also be a burglar trying to get in. It's far less dangerous to assume it's a burglar and have it turn out to be the wind than to assume it's the wind and have it turn out to be a burglar. So, the quick response assumes the worst and works like this. As soon as you get the stimulus, such as the sound of the door, your brain sends the sensory data to the thalamus, which forwards the information to the amygdala, which tells the hypothalamus to initiate the flight-or-fight response that could save your life if what you're seeing and hearing turns out to be an intruder. For the higher-level response, the thalamus simultaneously sends the information to the sensory cortex and the hippocampus to interpret the sensory information for more meaning. Has this been seen before, and are there other clues? If the hippocampus decides that the most likely scenario isn't dangerous, it tells the rest of the brain to chill out and to cancel the fight-or-flight alarm. So, that is a bit of neurology you can give to the trick-or-treaters along with the candy bars this year.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. The book Silent Spring, published in 1962, has been touted by leading scientists as being a springboard for the modern environmental movement. In fact, the Environmental Protection Agency might not exist if not for the book and its author, Rachel Carson. She uncovered how in the process of killing crop pests, DDT and other chemicals were also killing birds, fish, and other wildlife. 50 years after Silent Spring was published, several of the worst offending toxins are off the market, at least in the US, but many more persist and new ones have emerged. They threaten human health, not just wildlife. Timed to the 50th anniversary of the release of Silent Spring, a new book on Rachel Carson was published last month. It's called On a Farther Shore The Life and Legacy of Rachel Carson. The author, William Souter, is a journalist and author. He wrote two books previously a plague of frogs, and under the wild sky. Bill joins us now on the phone from his home near Stillwater, Minnesota, and we invite you to call in a few minutes into the interview if you have questions for William Souter, And the number is 303-442-4242. So, Bill, welcome to How on Earth.
2: Good morning. It's nice to be with you.
1: So I'm curious, for those youngsters out there who may not be old enough to have read her in middle school or or, um, high school, tell us a bit, who was she?
2: Well, Rachel Car. One of the reasons I wrote about Rachel Carson is because many people do not remember who she is. That's particularly true of people who are uh, younger than the baby boom generation and older than the millennials. Who, as you indicate, study. You're in school these days. There's this big sort of donut hole out there of mm. people who don't know who Rachel Carson was. She was in the 1950s one of the best known, uh, most beloved authors in America. She wrote three books about the ocean that were invariably described as poetic and, and lyrical and, and um, uh really celebrations of uh life and our scientific understanding of uh, of the natural world so she was a um, she was a very famous person by the time she got to turn her attention to pesticides in silent spring in 1962. She was uh, primarily a writer, but she trained as a zoologist. She had a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University, Uh, so she had serious scientific training, and she worked for many years for the government in the Fish and Wildlife Service as principally an information specialist, but someone who was very familiar with the scientific literature and reviewing it and, um, and in the state of science, particularly about ocean science, but also about these chemical pesticides that she was very concerned about.
1: And I'm curious, kind of personally, what about her got under your skin in the course of researching the book? I mean, I think back to, I think it was 1972 when I was in high school, and a biology teacher suggested I should read it, and it actually was quite pivotal and life-changing for me and I think for many others. And I'm curious, sort of the historical Rachel Carson and the Rachel Carson you spent God knows how many months yes.
2: with. What, so, what 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 is it that really got under your skin? So... Um, several things are are of interest to me. I'm, I'm interested as a writer in in science and history and in natural history and in biography because the store people's stories make good stories that the, the, a life is. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and a main character, and Mm. and these are good. These are good things to have. Um, Rachel Carson really embodied all of those interests, and uh, she lived and worked in a time that was very interesting to me. She came out of college just at the start of the Great Depression, and then worked for the government uh, through the 1930s and and 1940s. And this was a time of um, uh, a lot of difficulty in the country, but it was also a time when uh, ideas about conservationism and ecology were beginning to take root. Uh, she's a contemporary of Aldo Leopold, you know, another uh, advocate for um, looking at the world in a more uh, complex way and recognizing right. that ecosystems are uh, interrelated places. And so all, for all those reasons, she was she was just a perfect fit for me.
1: So historically, I mean, what would you say were her biggest, most significant discoveries or findings?
2: Well, I think that uh, going back to the mid-1940s, when she became aware that the Fish and Wildlife Service was conducting tests on DDT, this new sort of miracle insecticide that had come out of World War II and was about to go into really massive production for use in forestry and agriculture and in residential and commercial settings. Uh, in 1945, when the Fish and Wildlife Service started testing DDT, uh, they discovered right away that it was not harmless to wildlife and that it, there was a real potential for collateral damage to ecosystems when it was applied heavily, particularly from airplanes, which was a common method for um, treating large areas with DDT. And I think that she was among the first people to uh, To look at this data and look at these findings and realize what the implications were, and to understand that this was going to be potentially a very large problem uh, for wildlife certainly, but also potentially for uh, for human health. Uh, so I think that she was uh, she was very very early to that um, uh, to that conclusion, and it stuck with her all the way through the the balance of the 1940s and 1950s until she actually turned her attention to it in *Silent Spring*.
1: And interesting that a lot of the studies you refer to and that she based her her findings off of were government studies. And we can talk later about, you know, sort of the the, the progress of government-led studies versus others. So um, Uh, we're going to take a little break now.
0: You are listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show, and we are talking with William Souter, author of a new book about the life and legacy of Rachel Carson. If you have any questions for William Souter. You can call in at 303-442-4242. Back to Susan.
1: So another thing I want to ask is um, she drew this parallel between radioactive fallout and the excessive use of pesticides. Not saying that all pesticides should be banned, but what that they're both mutagenic. They persist in the environment, in our bodies. And you referred to before this historical context of the, the nuclear testing and certainly by then- We'd had uh, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. So, what what about that?
2: Well, that's right. This is, this is another sort of forgotten aspect of the 1940s and 1950s. We, we, the United States, were engaged in a furious arms race, with, principally with the Soviet Union. There were a few other countries that got involved in nuclear testing, but it was mainly us and the Soviets. And we were routinely testing uh, nuclear devices, nuclear bombs, above ground uh, in the atmosphere and sending you know, many, many tons of... Radioactive debris uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, this debris came back down as fallout. It contaminated large areas of the globe. It was often invisible, but it was kind of everywhere. And this was something that a generation that was growing up in the 1950s came to understand that there was the, the, the total environment, as Rachel Carson liked to call it, could be contaminated by some ubiquitous, unseen, toxic substance. And Carson recognized that there was an exact parallel between uh, that kind of contamination, which people already understood, and chemical contamination, which was a more novel idea at the time. This wasn't something that people worried about in the same way that we do today. And for Carson, these were existential questions. She Mm. believed that both radioactivity and chemical contaminants really threatened um, the global ecosystem in which we were embedded and uh, that that we were doing damage to. And in drawing that parallel, I think that she really made it clear, certainly to the baby boomers that would become the vanguard of the environmental movement, exactly what was at stake and exactly how these things were operating um, in the environment.
1: And at the time when the book came out, and maybe even before, right, she really got the ear of then-President John F. Kennedy, right? And particularly on this concern about DDT. And then and then didn't that start a cascade of, of studies and reports and ultimately a ban?
2: It, it didn't. Indeed. So in June of 1962, months ahead of the publication of uh, the book Silent Spring, three long excerpts of it were published by The New Yorker magazine, and these really became the focal point of, um, uh, of a, a raging controversy throughout the balance of the summer of 1962. And at the end of that summer, the end of August, still about a month before the book came out, President Kennedy was asked at a press conference if he was going to have the government take a look at DDT and other pesticides to see if... In fact, they represented the kind of threat that that Carson had described, and and, uh, he answered that that the government was, in fact, going to uh, look into the pesticides issue. And the day after that press conference, he appointed a presidential commission to look into, essentially, um, whether Silent Spring had it right or not. And about eight months later, that commission reported back that... Uh, Rachel Carson did have it right. The pesticides did um, cause all kinds of unanticipated um, damage to wildlife and to ecosystems, and that we really needed to take a harder look at what we were doing with them and look for ways to um, reduce the heavy use, uh, the kind of unbridled use, the heedless use of pesticides, which was what Carson was arguing for. So uh, the initial response from the government was to affirm what Carson had said, although. Um, that commission really didn't have any authority to propose concrete steps that the government could take to. So it was a it
1: was a toothless commission, or, or it was
2: a, it was a toothless commission. Yes, um, they, they made some broad recommendations about reducing the use of pesticides, but they really didn't have um, uh, any muscle uh, behind it. At that point, of course, there is no environmental protection agency, and these. Pesticides are regulated by the Department of Agriculture, which has its sort of first loyalty to um, the the agricultural industry and to farmers who are using these compounds. And so um, we didn't yet have any kind of an objective apparatus within the government to regulate pesticides.
1: And we'll bring the conversation to, like, where are we now politically and environmentally. But we want to um, welcome your calls so you can ask William Souter author of On a Farther Shore, The Life and Legacy of Rachel Carson. Some questions at 303-442-4242. So today we have DDT banned in the U.S., but not for export and such, right? And is that a good thing?
2: I think that probably is a good thing. Uh, DDT certainly is not a compound that we need to use in the United States. It is... um, Uh, It is an important tool in the fight against malaria and typhus and certain other insect-borne diseases that we really don't have to contend with here. So it is being used uh, these days in Africa and in Central America and uh, in other places. The United States actually hasn't exported DDT since the mid-1980s, but it it has always been uh, produced abroad and has always been available on the international market for use in countries where it is needed.
1: Thank you. And we've got a call from Jim in Boulder. Thank you.
3: <clears throat> Hi. Um, I was just reading and watching some movies that deal dealt with Rachel Carson. Um, a movie Last Call at the Oasis said that atrazine is still used on corn, even though it um, causes extra ovaries in frogs and perhaps in other species, too. And it's banned in Europe and... Uh, The the amounts that are allowed are just huge, but the lobbyists for the pesticide company, Syngenta, um, allow it to, well, they sort of do the regulatory capture and get the um, government agencies to do nothing.
1: Thank you. So, Bill, what about atrazine?
2: Yeah, so uh, Jim's right. Atrazine is an herbicide, and it's used mainly on corn crops um, in this country. Um, It has been banned by the European Union for a number of years. Um, Atrazine um, uh, was the subject of an extensive and exhaustive uh, review by the Environmental Protection Agency, which was ordered by Congress to um, review some of these older pesticides to see if they were safe. And that that investigation went on for years and years. And the EPA did finally decide several years ago to relicense atrazine, but they have recently reopened their investigation. Right, but it's just late.
3: I, I, I My two questions for you are: yeah. What would Rachel or you recommend people do to get the government, or or to join local groups or something like anti-fracking groups or help Kid whatever, to actually change things? Since it doesn't seem to happen through the EPA. Another article just said that in the EPA, 84% of its regulations have been weakened under the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, signed by Clinton. And but. To uh, inspire us, can you tell us also how she, in addition to adopting her dead niece's son and raising the five-year-old, she yeah. wrote all these books about the wonder in nature, the sense of wonder. Thanks,
1: Jim. I'm going I'm to put you down. Hi. Can we just first stick to the first question?
2: Yeah. Well, actually, I need wonder more than I need depression. <laughs> don 't we all uh, Jim, if I knew the answer to how we could make the the government more effective in in regulating important environmental matters i would be um, i 'd be a genius uh, i don 't know the answer to that you can uh, obviously we 're about to have an election, and there are some differences um, at both the national and at the local level between what candidates say about the need for regulation. I would listen to those i would I would incorporate uh... those considerations into the general decision that anyone makes about who they're going to vote for i think they are important i would point to climate change as an environmental issue of tremendous importance that has been completely absent completely absent from the current presidential campaign um, we we have maybe a vague idea of where the candidates might stand on that but um, uh, so it 's very very difficult we do We do not live in a time when um, environmental concerns are a high priority in washington that 's been true under both Republican and democratic administrations. The EPA has gotten weaker under both both types of, under yeah. both parties and um,
1: Bill? Okay, so I wanted to um, bring up another point as well. Since uh, elections are right around the corner, we can't avoid asking. I mean, Bill just referred to uh, the problem with um, sort of partisan times now, and I think it's important for us to look at, since elections are one week away, sort of what's at stake. Not just for climate change, but pesticides and such. And um, looks like we've lost him. (laughs) So... All right. Well, sorry about that, but we will continue another time with William Souter. That was William Souter, oh, journalist. I'm still here, oh. Okay. Sorry we missed you. All right. Sorry, we've got time for one more quickie. So, what's oh, at sure. stake with the elections next week in terms of pesticides? Things that Rachel would care about.
2: I don't know for sure what's at <laughs> stake because there has been so little discussion of this. Um, clearly, the uh, many Republican candidates have expressed dismay with the Environmental Protection Agency. They would like to see it reined in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think environmentalists would argue that we need to do just the opposite, which is to give it a little more influence over uh, matters that would include climate change but, but also pesticides and, and other contaminants. There is emerging technology all the time that exceeds our ability to regulate it. So the idea that we are over-regulating chemicals pesticides, um, thing, you know, greenhouse gases, other things that influence the environment that we live in is simply uh, not true. And you, one thing that was true in 1962 remains true today, and that is that our ability to innovate new technologies that we sometimes uh, deploy without understanding what kind of collateral damage they might cause to the environment, it, it always outpaces our ability to, to keep up with um, the potential harm. So uh, we, we certainly need more vision than ever before.